The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. I think we should call the police. Absolutely not. Come on, there's, there's been a murder. Phoebe, we could be suspects. We're not suspects. We're witnesses. We're foreigners. We're dead broke, desperate for money. This is crazy. We haven't done anything wrong. Why are we running? You have any idea what the French legal system is like, huh? It's a nightmare. We don't speak the language. We don't understand the rules. We'll spend years in jail before the case even goes to trial. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, February 6th, 2020. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and today, introducing our first Just Right Freedom panel in part one of a two-part discussion that begins today. This is a venture I hope you'll enjoy as a recurring feature of Just Right from time to time. And believe it or not, our first panel consists of ten participants who will share their wisdom, common sense, philosophy, and wry sense of humor, all topped with a healthy dose of sarcasm as they reflect on various freedom issues. It all gets underway right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archived broadcasts, and of course, where we encourage you to offer your financial support and in so doing, become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. We have an unusual gathering and a large panel today of 10 people. And before we get our conversations underway, which could be about any topic that might come to our mind pertaining to freedom, capitalism, and general issues that people who listen to Just Right would be interested in. A lot of them are fans of Just Right. Some have been guests on Just Right before, and we have them all together here for a panel to see how that discussion goes. And we'll begin by introducing them all to you. And let's start with... Paul McKeever. Uh, Danielle Metz. Tim Hodges. Robbie Smink. Ted Harlson. Dave Plum. Gord Mood. Dave Dernan. Liz Bendell. And those are our panelists. And... We had a historic event that happened just in the last little while, and that was, of course, Brexit became a reality. And Nigel Farage gave his final speech in the European Union Parliament. And I was just wondering if anyone around the table here has any particular reaction to that, if you're aware of the whole situation. Well, I just found it, uh, considering how long it took to get to this, it shows you the dedication of those in power to make sure that the people don't get their voice heard. I mean, they caused basically another referendum to happen in the election of uh, Boris Johnson, the one they just had back in December, to finally cement it because they would not accept the people's voice. And they kept saying it's undemocratic because we have to have another referendum. That one will really be the people's voice. And then 
if that didn't work, then they do another one and they just keep doing it over and over and over again. So I'm so happy that the British people got their backbones in place and they told Brussels where to go and got out of there because that was destroying. You watch what it does to the people in Britain. They couldn't fish their own waters because they had international rights with the European Union. So the fishermen were going under. And just the stupid laws that we pass, the curvature of a cucumber or a banana was regulated by people they couldn't vote for. This is ridiculous. It's so, and they have their own anthem, the European Union does, their own flag, and they want their own army. Gee, I don't know where I've heard that totalitarianism caused before. And it's just, it's, I'm just so happy for them. I, I cheered, I watched the celebrations and everything. It was just wonderful, heartwarming, finally to see something good for change in the world happen. Can I mention too, like the people that voted, um, Nigel Farage said, if you don't vote and aren't typically a person who votes, just vote this time. <laughs> and I think that's what happened. <laughs> just vote this time. Well, I thought it was a wonderful outcome of the, the, the election that made this possible, that gave the government, the Conservatives, a majority in the, in the Parliament, and that made it possible, therefore, for the Prime Minister to get Brexit done. People say it's not done because there's 11 months. I saw all this disingenuous talk over the last few days where they say, oh, but we're still operating under EU rules, so congratulations, everybody, you achieved nothing. Well, that's so disingenuous. Look, there's a transition period. That doesn't mean you failed. It just means... You've, you've effectively created the, the beginning of an 11-month process. So you've succeeded. The idea that Brexit's failed is absolute nonsense. The other thing is, is um, really kind of heartening, and, and that's the justice that we're seeing, because there's honesty coming out. In other words, the, the very people who said that Britain will never survive without Europe are now the people who said Europe, uh, the European Union might not start survive without Britain. So France and Germany, they're all upset now that, uh-oh, this is, this is starting a, a stampede out of the EU. And by the way, we just lost 40% of our economy. And, you know, well, it was a big bluff, you know. The EU, yeah, as a group of, a group of countries, is slightly bigger than the economy of, of Britain. But Britain was by far the lion in that outfit. Germany, of course, is the remaining major producer in that outfit. But all these other countries, and you're starting to see it right now in the political cartoons, you know, all the other countries lining up to be the next uh, exiting country. And someone put out a map within the last couple of days that showed, you know, for each country what their exit should be called. So Grexit, and, you know, for, the, for Greece. And, and I just thought it was hilarious. It, but ultimately what it means is sovereignty, the people who are being governed by a set of laws have control over the people who make those laws. So that if you've got a, a situation like they had in the United States where the Republicans are effectively giving you the same garbage as the Democrats, you can through taking over that party, taking over one of the parties, for example, gain some control over the agenda of your government. So that's what's happened in the US. That's what happened, what's happened in Ontario to some extent, although it looks like the Ford government's falling back on the old two one-party situation, you know. I, I don't understand why people aren't surprised that Britain left in the first place. Britain has a different history than the rest of the continent. The continent means nothing, really, in terms of its impact of North America and Britain itself philosophically. Britain rejected most of the Continentals. And I was surprised when Verhofstadt, the Belgian former prime minister, got up in the EU parliament and said that Britain had saved Europe twice. I was thinking, no, that's wrong. That's three times. They, they don't include Napoleon. And it, it saved Europe three times. And the Europeans are ungrateful. 
and go ahead with this centralized authority to mimic exactly what Britain didn't want in the first place. Right. So why is anybody surprised that Britain left the European Union when Europe has no trial by jury? It has no common law. Europe has the Napoleonic Code. There's so many things that clashed between the Continentals and the Islanders. In including, including philosophy, right. historically. But, of course, there's the law, which comes from philosophy, largely, and the experience of the British. I don't think Europe had that sort of history where uh, a guy would come to power from Parliament, become a dictator, kick out the nobility, and then they come back and they're welcomed. Right? I mean, you had Oliver Cromwell, you had the Magna Carta, you had all that history that continental Europe never really experienced any kind of rebellion like that. And, and philosophically, you had the same thing. You had John Locke, who's really kind of creating, for the first time, a uh, system of individual rights. The Americans took those ideas from Locke and employed it into their system entirely. That's right. Jefferson basically took life, liberty, and property from Locke, and with Benjamin Franklin's recommendation, changed it to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And even in, when Cromwell was in power and he, he was out and the king came back, they, the British Bill of Rights was signed by the monarch, which almost is a replica of the American Bill of Rights. Now, everybody says the British don't have anything written down. It's like, well, they do. They have a lot of stuff written down. But what they do have is a tradition that isn't written down. Yeah. But they do have a lot of formal individual rights that Europeans do not have. Well, the whole common law, that's where you find the individual rights. Right. And that, it was the clash in the first place. Now, everybody's trying to put a narrative of the British being xenophobic and racist and all that. I, when did that not happen on the continent? I mean, <laughs> they have a whole history of xenophobia and racism. But that's not what this currently is about. It's about the contradictions of the two systems. They can't coexist and the British will become just another bland authoritarian country because that's what Europe ultimately will become. If they get away with having that centralized authority, even a country like the Netherlands, which is freer than most other countries in Europe, will become just like every other country, just bland and nothing. Well, it, it, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, Ayn Rand is right when she stated that Germany has not learned from history. They need a philosophic revolution. And they're not going to change their globalist agendas until they do. And it's just amazing how Iron Man foresaw this way back in 1960. And it's still running its course. You know, I just right a few episodes ago, a few weeks back, there was um, a profile of, a, I think it was a YouTuber, and he was talking about how Germans see the world differently than most of the rest, right? Yeah, I've seen that. Right. They see the world as we Whereas in Britain, they, they people see the world as I. And um, that was, I think, Sargon of Akkad. Oh, that's right. right. Yeah, that's right. It was a brilliant observation, by the way. Right. So you can see that the remnants of philosophy from the 1700s and the 1800s continues to plague Germany. I mean, German romantic philosophers continue to uh, monopolize thought in Europe. And I think it's fair to say that if Lockean philosophy exists anywhere anymore. It's in Britain, 
the United States and to a lesser extent Canada. At least we recognize what rights are in those three places, or, or you could say Australia and, and New Zealand. In other words, they're known enough, the ideas of individual rights are known enough to be opposed. Right. <laughs> which which uh, a lot of people don't understand about Europe in general is that they've always opposed individual rights, starting with the embracing of the Catholic Church and rejecting Protestantism. And when that was introduced, that how that conflict played out. Largely at that time, Catholicism was more collectivist than Protestantism because Protestants would find their savior in themselves, right? The, ultimately, that you were responsible for finding it rather than in the papal authority, which I think was then uh, just prior to the Enlightenment. But is nonetheless, I think that goes all the way back to the Romans and the Greeks, right? Well, so, I think it coincides because the Glorious Revolution was 1688 and Locke's book came out in 1689. Right. So. So, I mean, obviously they do coincide with each other. Yeah. I think you're right on that the German perspective is uh, largely Hegelian. I think as a philosopher, he embraced the um, Prussian attitude towards the state. That is, the state is everything. And this is prior to communism and fascism. Well, it's what made communism and fascism possible. I think. Well, I mean, Marx was a huge fan of Hegel. Right. And Hegelian philosophy has basically ruined Europe, but they don't seem to care that much enough to embrace Locke. He took Hegelian dialectic and turned it into dialectic materialism. Right. Marx did. Which Marx? Yeah. yeah. So I'm calling people on the world, rejects it. Reject the whole thing. Well, I think the Europeans are, are too much in love with that. <laughs> they, they, they love authority. And I think that goes back to what you're saying about the Germans embracing authoritarianism. They've never shaken that off. And the French haven't really either. The French, when they had their revolution, it turned into a far worse situation than what they had before. They had a reign of terror. Yeah. And then they got a worse dictator in Napoleon, who just basically ran roughshod over the whole continent. And now we've forgotten about all that history. And Well, it's interesting in the French Revolution, which was a revolution against nobility, you know, the, the different classes of per- persons, you had different estates, you had the religious estate, you had the nobles, and you had the, the rest of the rabble, right? And the rest of the rabble were the greatest in number, and they're the ones who were starting to torch, you know, the landlord's buildings and, and coerce that landlord to give up some of his noble, noble privileges. As that started to gain steam and they started to become a republic, it was then the something-for-nothingers, the collectivists, who went in and basically seized on a parade. You know the old thing about communism? They always look for a parade and then they run to the front of it with their Soviet banner, as though to to leave the impression that this is a a great big parade of of, of communists, when in fact everyone's just scratching their head saying, who are these idiots at the front of the parade? You know, they always create the illusion that they're popular. I love... Love the British. Uh, They have become more American than us. Uh, They they have just done to the EU what we did, except they did it without a war. And they did it with all kinds of pressure and all kinds of doomsday stuff. And Nigel Farage, who has been fighting this battle since the day he got into the EU, gave one of the best speeches I've ever ever heard i want to play the whole speech and you gotta make it to the end because it's i mean you couldn't write it you couldn't write it what the eu does at the very end is 
incredible. It makes the point. And this is the shot heard around the world. I want you to listen to this speech. So this is it, the final chapter, the end of the road. A 47-year political experiment that the British, frankly, have never been very happy with. My mother and father signed up to a common market, not to a political union, not to flags, anthems, presidents, and now you even want your own army. For me, it's been 27 years of campaigning and over 20 years here in this parliament. I'm not particularly happy with the agreement we're being asked to vote on tonight, but Boris has been remarkably bold in the last few months, and Ms. von der Leyen, he's made it clear, he's promised us there'll be no level playing field. And on that basis, I wish him every success in the next round of negotiations, I really do. But the most significant point is this, what happens at 11pm this Friday, the 31st of January 2020, marks the point of no return. Once we've left, we are never coming back, and the rest, frankly, is detail. We're going, we will be gone. And that should be the summit of my own political ambitions. I walked in here, as I've said before, you all thought it was terribly funny, uh, you stopped laughing in 2016. But my view has changed of Europe since I, since I joined. In 2005, I saw the constitution that had been drafted by Giscard and others. I saw it rejected by the French in a referendum. I saw it rejected by the Dutch in a referendum. And I saw you in these institutions ignore them, bring it back as a Lisbon Treaty and boast you could ram it through without there being referendums. Well, the Irish did have a vote and did say no and were forced to vote again. You're very good at making people vote again, but what we've proved is the British are too big to bully, thank goodness. I became an outright opponent of the entire European project. I want Brexit to start a debate across the rest of Europe. What do we want from Europe? If we want trade, friendship, cooperation, reciprocity, we don't need a European Commission. We don't need a European Court. We don't need these institutions and all of this power. And I can promise you, both in UKIP and indeed in the Brexit Party, we love Europe. We just hate the European Union. It's as simple <laughs> as that. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping this begins the end of this project. It's a bad wow. project. It isn't just undemocratic, it's anti-democratic. And it puts in that front row. It gives people power without accountability. People who cannot be held to account by the electorate. And that is an unacceptable structure. Indeed, there's an historic battle going on now across the West, in Europe, America and elsewhere. It is globalism against populism. And you may loathe populism, but I tell you a funny thing, it's becoming very popular. <laughs> and it has great benefits 
No more financial contributions. No more European Court of Justice. No more common fisheries policy. No more being talked down to. No more being bullied. No more Guy Verhofstadt. I mean, I mean, what's not to like? I know you're going to miss us. I know you want to ban our national flags, but we're going to wave you goodbye. And we'll look forward in the future to working with you as sovereign... They cut his mic. Now listen. If you disobey the rules, you get cut off. Could we please remove the flags? Mr. Farage. Could we remove the flags, please? That sentence all over. Finish. We're gone. Could I please ask for quiet? I'm really, please sit down, resume your seats, put your flags away, you're leaving, and take them with you if you are leaving now. Is that not crazy? Can I just say, if I may say, just in a slight reference, the word hate was used in the last um, contribution. And I really think, given what we listened to prior to this, that we should not hate anyone, or any nation, or any people. Oh, isn't that great? Except the loathing in your voice. And he said, you know, he he hates the European Union, the body, the government. He didn't hate the countries. He's standing up for the countries. And for him to say, we're sovereign again, and we wave you goodbye with the flags, and for that union to then say, their response is, remove the flags. We're shutting you down. You don't have a voice until you remove that flag. Oh, my gosh. They made every point for him. The microcosm of the entire uh, arrangement. Yeah, and it's a microcosm. Everything he said, that's... That is the American founding. That is the American revolution breaking away from the corrupt mothership. They did it without a shot, but I'm telling you that speech is the shot that will be heard all around the world. That speech will be the shot that will be heard all over Europe and people will be emboldened to leave. You know, with respect to the whole Brexit situation, I was listening to Nigel Farage, and he made some very fascinating comments in his final speech there. And subsequently, I I found it also parallel to what he said, something Donald Trump said after. Trump had just finished concluding a trade deal with China, and then the North American trade deal, the one with, you know, Canada, USMCA, and uh, Mexico. And he says, now we've got to deal with Europe. And he said, this is going to be worse than China, worse than all the others he's had to deal with, because that's how bad the situation is in Europe in terms of their trade practices. Tim. Um, If you look at the migrant camps in Calais, um, this proves that the people prefer the UK. Uh, Go to London, England. You'll see lots of people from Central Europe. Uh, Just even compare the population centers of Paris or Frankfurt to London and you'll see you know that there's huge numbers huge differences in numbers prove that more individuals prefer the individual rights system Um, the good thing about Brexit is that we can come back in 10 years and say 
now we can see, look at how these two competing systems of individual versus group rights worked out, and we can see which one worked out for the better. My concern about that is people might run to the fruits of individualism, thinking that they can impose something for nothingism on it, right? So that, in other words, it might not be that, and it probably isn't, that they're pursuing individual freedom. They're just pursuing wealth that resulted from the capitalism that was made possible by individual freedom. You go to where the money is and you figure that, well, if there's money there, there's something magical about, you know, there's, I don't know if any of you read um, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, and there was this in a book called The Silmarillion. And in, in The Silmarillion, you've got Middle Earth. We've seen that in The Lord of the Rings, you know. That, that's because it's on a map, a two-dimensional map. Middle Earth is in the middle of the map. And then over on the left of the map, you've got this undying lands, okay, where all the demigods or the angels and the, the dead elves or whatever uh, hang out. And there is supposedly a ban. In other words, human beings aren't allowed to go to the undying lands. The belief in the, of, the, of the humans in the middle, middle Earth comes to be, because Sauron the evil tells them this, that they're trying to hog that undying land for themselves. Why, if you went over to the undying lands, you would live forever. Why don't they want you over there? They want to deny you immortality. And of course, it's a trick. You don't become immortal by going to the undying lands. The undying lands are undying because the people who live there are immortal. Right. Right? And so the same thing here. Capitalism is made possible by individual freedom. Capitalism leads to a lot of wealth. You can't just go to where, it's wealth, uh, where there's a lot of wealth and expect to be wealthy. You have to create that. the wealth. They call that the cargo cult. That's exactly right. Yes. Well, describe that, uh, Gordon. So if you have somebody who comes in with technology and you don't understand how the technology works, if you merely imitate its look, then you think you'll be able to get the same use as that technology. <laughs> so in other words, if you have speakers that are electrical and they're hooked up to uh, a microphone, if you merely build a microphone that, or build something that looks like a microphone and then, and, then, and then you connect it somehow to that box that looks like a speaker, it'll act the same way as that speaker. Right. And the cargo cult was, was if, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, uh, a tribe had seen, who weren't, who weren't exposed yet to technology, had seen a car. Uh, I think the, the, it goes to the Second World War. Okay. And it was in the Pacific and it was... Uh, the local people didn't understand how the Americans' technology worked. So when the Americans left, they tried to build items that mimicked the technology. So in other words, it looked like the, the items that were there, and they expect them to behave the same way. But there was literally an attempt to build a car that didn't go. Right. It, <laughs> it could be car. I was thinking more of the uh, the, I think it was a airport and i think they were building some of the uh, equipment that looked like was at the airport yeah the underlying principles weren't yet understood right which yeah. is what exactly what you're saying right the underlying principles are the important thing but again china has sort of incorporated some of the underlying principles of capitalism but they don't they're not a capitalist society they're a business society right that's right yeah so that's the building of something that mimics that entity. So in other words, they have state-run enterprises and individually owned enterprises at the same time. Yes, we trade money for things. 
Right. But, but we don't believe in the freedom of the individual to trade what he wants to trade for the price he wants to trade it. Right. Getting back to the uh, European Union, I find it hard as a student of history to believe that the union can't see that it in itself is its own contradiction. But they believe in contradictions. I mean, if they're, they're Hegelian or Marxists, they believe that contradictions are not a problem. Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad that's clarifying. <laughs> well, that's I, being left-wing. Yeah. You have to contradict yourself. Because yeah. <laughs> they, they think it, uh, contradictions are innate in human beings. And so, therefore, if a contradiction exists in reality, it's no big deal because... You know, we all have our own contradictions. So if they exist in reality, it's not a big deal. They form new sentences and new truths out of yeah. contradictions. Yeah. You'll be, able, you'll be able to live with them, no problem. The, the fact that their society collapsed, like the Russian Revolution led to the complete collapse of their society, that's okay because somehow they'll come overcome it with some other contradiction that might help them. I, I don't know, Ralph. <laughs> Who knows? So it comes down, I guess, to the fact that uh, a lot of people don't understand cause and consequence. Or they living, they're living, operating on a philosophy that says contradictions exist. Yeah. And therefore, and, there, and so therefore we shouldn't be put off by things like logical contradictions. Because we, man, we manage through without the logical consistency. And so they'll, they'll mock it. They'll say, well, what, do you want us all to be like Mr. Spock? Yeah. What kind of existence would that be? Data? Do you want to be like data? That wouldn't be fun. <laughs> what about the heart? Forget about the mind. And, the, and the, so they, they need to believe they can get something for nothing when logic tells them it won't work. When every bit of evidence and logic tells them, I can't get something from nothing, they say, but there's contradictions. And so maybe I can. Maybe the idea that I can't get something for nothing, maybe that the flaw there is to believe that it has to be logical that something has to, has to flow logically from something else. Maybe something can both be and not be at the same time. Hey, I mean, a woman can be both cold and not cold at the same time. How? Well, she might need a sweater, but at the same time, um, she might be a very warm personality. Friendly. <laughs> yeah, friendly. Yeah. <laughs> they're essentially just denying reality, though. Yeah. Well, they're playing games. Well, they also have a disagreement about reality being uh, objective. So if you're going to go down that road, they, they think that, well, it depends, of course, I can't say generally, but I can say that some of them, like the postmodernists, uh, believe that we all create our own reality and our own narrative and that there's an unlimited number of truths because you can have an unlimited number of narratives. So therefore... Uh, what we experience as truth may not be the same for you. You know, like, so if I run and jump off the building, I'll fall and die. But maybe if you try, you won't, uh, because your truth is different than my truth. So it's total subjectivism. Which is, which is why, by the way, all those pop science articles on are we, are we just living with our brains in a vat, like the right. guys in the, you know, what was the movie? The Matrix. The Matrix, Matrix yeah. yeah. Are we all living in the Matrix? It's very popular to believe that, because that, that would explain a lot of things that would resolve a lot of contradictions for them. Oh, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, maybe we are. I mean, I don't know for sure. Let's try it out. What kind of experiment would you run to find that out? You right? jump off the building. Yeah, well, that, even that doesn't prove it, right? I mean, like, how can you actually prove that? That's an unprovable proposition. It's actually not, but it has historically not been proven. It's been treated as the problem of external reality. 
Right. But I'm offering up a solution in my upcoming book. Okay, good to know. There's a little plug. Yes. When will, when will that be? Yeah. <laughs> it's been six years already on that. Uh, okay. Yeah. Lucky number seven. <laughs> yeah, we can talk all we want now because he's going to edit all this out. It'll all be 20 minutes long in the end. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you never know. Um, actually, I'm, I'm very surprised at where the conversations have been going, the direction it's all been flowing. It's like a car, Bob. Just drive it around. England, bound in with the triumphant sea, whose rocky shore beats back against the envious siege of watery Neptune. Now it is bound in rotten parchments and inky blots, a slave unto itself. England, that was wont to conquer others, is now a shameful conqueror of itself. Wrote Shakespeare, ironically. <laughs> about what would eventually become the European Union. And real quickly, I must remind you young people to get out there and get active. We need a 12th referendum. And, and we promise this will be absolutely the last. No returns, touch wood, not the absolute. We swear that no more 12 and we're done. As much as we Americans might want to take the credit for Greta Thunberg, I think the Brits got to her first, so I'm going to turn over the honors to uh, our friend from MI6, Sir Humphrey Standard. <clears throat> what you young people are doing here today is nothing short of something very well coordinated to the untrained eye look spontaneous. <clears throat> You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. So the whole climate change issue has been a constant thorn in everyone's side. It's something that we're still dealing with. All our politicians operate on the premise that climate change is a catastrophe about to happen, that it's a crisis, and that just about every policy that we hear these days are being based on climate change. So Dave Plum, you're our expert on that particular issue. Any overall thoughts? I have lots of thoughts. I could talk all day on it. What do you want to know? <laughs> well, just what would be the priority in your mind? What should people be thinking about or not thinking about? What well, direction? I think, I think we need to stop programming the kids in school to believe in all this stuff. I mean, when you look at the Ontario high school curriculum, and I'm going off the top of my head here, I think there's something like 179 references to uh, climate change, and there's or 180, 188 references, 79 references to greenhouse gas, and one reference to what really matters, which is Milankovitch cycles. And when you look at the courses that this is coming from, uh, most of this is emanating from sociology and humanities, uh, and it's metastasizing throughout the rest of the school system. I mean, this is a cancer that needs to be cut out. We've got uh, kids now um, reportedly uh, suffering from climate change PTSD, uh, because they're being terrorized by the climate change terrorists that are standing at the front of the classrooms uh, pumping all this crap into their heads. That has to change. Yeah, and have you noticed that you can take just about any ongoing catastrophe and someone ultimately will monomaniacally try to connect it with climate change. So, for example, you've got fires burning. Wildfires. Yeah, yeah fires mm -hmm. burning in Australia that were 
from what I understand, clearly started by arsonists. 184 times. Yeah, 184. Is that what the number is? But it, the story isn't about arson. The story is about how the, the land was so dry because of climate change. And this, what, otherwise wouldn't have happened? Arsonists couldn't have burned forests if it weren't so dry? Well, there's other problems with forest management, too, where uh, years ago they used to burn out the underbrush periodically, and then they decided maybe that wasn't a good idea. So now they uh, run out as soon as a spark starts in the forest, they run out and stop the fire, like put it out, until the day comes when one gets a little bit out of control, and there's so much kindling in the forest that it, uh, it were, before it used to just burn through, and new saplings could grow in the enriched soil. Now it takes down the big trees, too. So, uh, you know, our focus on doing the right thing environmentally and, and not understanding what the environment really requires is going to be part of our undoing. Well, not only that, I think the lying. I mean, as I say, take this, um, this flu that's going around, the coronavirus. Mm. How many days is it going to be before someone finds a way of connecting that with climate change? For example, if they ultimately trace it to some particular kind of animal that somebody ate, and if they say that, well, the only reason that, that animal had that virus was because its normal food supply was uh, choked off by a drought or by uh, too much water or something along those lines, and that therefore that animal had to resort to eating such and such, which gave them the disease, which would then was... I mean, they're going to try and find, in almost every case, a way of connecting the tragedy to climate change. We see it already with, you know, the impact that climate had on such things as wars. I mean, wars? You're going to connect war to climate change? Well, maybe wars had a, an impact on climate. Well, if you take a look at that, at any graph that just show you the number of wars that are happening, it's always, it's always completely going down. So there's fewer wars now than there's ever been in history. So I think that one might be a weaker argument. But it definitely could be an argument they would give because they believe in the butterfly effect. That is, the smallest thing in the world could have this huge impact and, you know, ultimately lead to climate catastrophe. Right. So anything in the world that's happening, I mean, even me talking here, could lead to some crisis in the world because that's the butterfly effect. So that they're, they're connecting these dots that don't connect. Yes, yeah, so we have to censor you so that nobody hears the message that might cause someone to keep driving their car and keep having cows. So clearly censorship is required. If you look historically, I mean, the goofy thing is that, uh, like in the last World War we had, we had the coldest temperatures on, basically on record, you know, when um, the, the Germans were trying to, you know, uh, go after Stalingrad and Moscow. So, I, I mean... It's not like war raised the temperatures or anything like that. <laughs> well, we get all this other stuff too, like Great Lakes levels. Now everybody's all up in arms. Climate change is causing the Great Lakes to overflow. Well, the Great Lakes levels right now are right about where they were in 1986 and 87, the last time they peaked. And this is a cyclical thing. It goes up and down. There's something like uh, 50 centimeters lower than they were in like 1838, I think. So... You know, they're, they're talking about historical all-time highs, and that's a lie, too. I mean, the Great Lakes have been a lot higher before than they are now. And, and yet, it's today's Great Lake levels are all because we have a climate catastrophe happening. Well, that's not true. Not, not only that, but the flooding that's occurring in places like Toronto Island. 
Okay. You don't suppose those dams across the St. Lawrence exactly. River that are backing that that are backing up the St. Lawrence into Lake Ontario to prevent flooding in Montreal have anything to do with that, do you? Exactly right. So they they dam off the the St. Lawrence, which causes the water not to flow out into the into the sea, and then they say, well, it's because of climate change. No, it's because you built a dam that prevents the water from getting out, and you're flooding Toronto intentionally because of political reasons. Yeah, but you have to understand this is the political narrative where facts don't matter. Well, no. <laughs> well, convenient lies. That's what yeah. you want to have. Yeah. I mean, if all if justice prevailed, the dam would never have been built. The water would always have flown where it flows. And the buildings that currently stand to get submerged in Quebec wouldn't get submerged because they wouldn't have been built there in the first place. They would have realized that they were too close to the water's edge. We've got sunken cities all over the world that tells you if you build cities right down to the water's edge, sooner or later they're going to end up underwater. Right. But we ignore the we ignore the lessons of history. We keep keep building multi-trillion-dollar developments right down to the water's edge, and then when a, a hurricane or a flood surge comes in and destroys some of it, we howl and say, "Greatest economic loss ever." Well, that's because like a hundred or two hundred years ago, where we've got these trillions of dollars worth of buildings, there was nothing there to be lost. It was trees and woods. So we keep doing this, and uh, and we we deliberately put all these uh, all this real estate in harm's way, and then we wail and gnash our teeth and 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 blame carbon dioxide when nature inevitably comes along and does what nature always does to these areas. It's just that all these expensive trinkets are in the way to get washed out now. Not only that, we put land where there used to be lake and then built buildings on them in Toronto. I mean, there are buildings built right now where there used to be lake. Yeah, and we've got cities like uh, like New Orleans built, what, below sea level? Well, that's a good idea. But there is one country that's almost completely below sea well, level and doesn't, doesn't have any problems like this. Well, the, Nether the Netherlands doesn't have any issues with being uh, lower than the water table uh, because they figured it out. Well, they've got so, more little boys with fingers and dikes. <laughs> But they've, they've... That's what all the windmills are about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it but, is. Yeah, it's absolutely. to pump water. Yeah, yeah, of course. But they've figured it out. I don't know why, as Canadians, we couldn't take that kind of precaution and do the exact same thing they're doing. So, we absolutely and, should. And, and there's no reason for anybody in the world to be worried about cities being submerged below the water when all you have to do is just imitate exactly what the Dutch are doing. That's all you have to do. Well, I mean, you know, everybody's talking about this uh, climate crisis and how the human species is threatened and all that sort of thing. When I was first researching my book that I wrote, uh, which is, goes back four or five years now, uh, I, I made a statement in there that uh, human population was about 7 billion, and I was going to go with that rather than trying to chase the number while I wrote. Well, now it's like 7.8 billion. If I were to rewrite that book today, I would have to up the 7 billion to 8 billion because it seems like our long-term strategy of simply adapting to things has been working pretty well. Yeah. Why do we feel we need to stop the climate from changing? Well, exactly. Those buildings in Toronto wouldn't be there unless we were capable of dealing with where the water goes. Exactly. So, I mean, let's just keep adapting. It's, it's just stupid to say that we need to stop climate change. And I get a kick out of people who accuse me of being a climate change denier. I have never denied climate change. As a matter of fact, in, in the view of these people, I would, I would be something a lot worse than a climate change denier. I'm a climate change promoter because I've done enough study of of uh, natural history and, and science to understand that constant climate change is one of the principal reasons that uh, 
that life developed and, and, and evolved into complex life forms. And one of the principal reasons why complex multicellular life like people continue to exist on this planet. If, if climate change stops, so do we. And I'm not ready to go extinct yet, so I'm all in favor of climate change continuing. Here, here. And let's not forget that this whole climate change thing is all a creation of the left to promote leftist points of view. Well, not the climate change thing, Bob. The, na- the notion that it's man-made and catastrophic. Yeah. I, I think that a, a lot of people um, equate climate change is a bad thing because they're confusing it with pollution which is the That's real right. which is the real bad thing because the weather will change changes hourly changes daily weekly but it's the pollution i think that that the left is trying to equate, confu- equate and confuse the general uh, public with but the thing about the the whole thing about the weather changing is i'd like to really uh, express you know the concern that the big lie in weather-related and pollution and everything else is that CO2 is somehow a pollutant, whereas it's absolutely not. It only makes up 0.04% of the atmosphere. It's a necessity for all living organisms on Earth. The more, the better. And the problem is, is that the left and the major media and all that are promoting exactly the opposite, that they're promoting it as some kind of pollutant, some kind of a evil thing, and, and, and it's not. And I would really like to see that lie exposed by more of you know, these type of discussions and, and by the media in general. The real sinister thing for me here is um, if we look at uh, what happened at, around Sudbury in, in the early 70s with the acid rain, that was real pollution. You know, basically the, the pollution we had up there was causing uh, acidic rain that was actually eating up all the plants that were up there. NASA used that area as a test ground for uh, their lunar modules and stuff because it was so um, barren, barren yes. of, of, of any sort of life. It, it was the closest thing they could find to the moon. Um, but... When we have that next thing that we find, okay, maybe we shouldn't have done these culpable things. Now we've already cried wolf here about the CO2. Now people aren't going to believe us on these new actual pollutants that might come up in the future. Good point. And to clarify on the CO2 issue, what uh, Robbie said, that percentage, a lot of people don't relate to percentages, especially when there's a few numbers after the decimal point. It's one part in 2,500. Most people can relate to that. Now, what we are engaged in in this war against climate change is a war. (laughs) And I know a little bit about war. I've served my country in the military. I know all about the military. I served my country in the military. What did I do in the military? I was a... uh... Very good. What did I do in the military? I was a a counselor for transgender soldiers. I don't often talk about it. I saw a lot of horrible things, but if... uh... If you are interested, I did sell my story to Hollywood. They're going to turn it into a motion picture called Hormones on the Frontline. (laughs) 
you young people are doing here today is, is something absolutely amazing. And I think it's a shame that those of us who should be leading are following instead, and those who should be following are leading. Because we leaders are the greatest followers of your following. Well, not all leaders. Some leading leaders, instead of following the following, are leading. I'm not going to name any names, but uh, Donald Trump, <laughs> Donald Trump, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a bit like that student-teacher, teacher-student thing, that student who was teaching about the teacher teaching him taught us. Paul, you had a really interesting topic of discussion on your mind that you suggested earlier, and it had to do with your frustration. Yeah, it was the idea that um, it's one thing to know a lot about philosophy. It's another thing to know a lot about electoral politics. And I'm seeing a lot of frustration by objectivists on the web, especially on Facebook. Uh, people saying, uh, you know, you shouldn't, for example, be a supporter of Trump or you shouldn't support the Democrats or what have you. And usually the standard is objectivism. I mean, they're objectivists, so they want that to be the standard by which we judge politicians, except that I, th I think the people who know a lot about philosophy in too many cases don't know a lot about the game that is called electoral politics. They're disappointed that um, politicians aren't also philosophically informed or that their policies aren't based on philosophy, etc. I understand where, where that comes from. When I was much younger and when I was first introduced to Freedom Party and in fact to philosophy, I think the first book I was handed was, uh, and Gord, we were just... Bastiat. Oh yeah, it was Bastiat's The Law. And, you know, you read the first two, three, four pages of Bastiat's The Law and it's very exciting stuff. And it gets you all excited, and next thing you know, you're reading uh, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, and The Virtue of Selfishness by Ayn Rand, and you're getting more and more informed about philosophy. And then you look at the politicians who are all around you, and you say, these guys have got it all wrong. And it takes a long, long time to realize that the people who are disappointing you, they haven't gone through that experience at all. They haven't gone through reading the law or reading any Ayn Rand, and they don't even necessarily know what philosophy is. Gord? I, I agree completely. I think that... Uh... One of the issues is uh, short-term and long-term. Politicians are always going to do things in the short-term. And they don't, they don't want to have a system in place that will take care of most of what they want to have. I'm not a lawyer, but most politicians are, are, are lawyers, right? Uh, you less say? And le well, less and less, but yeah, that's been the history. So when a lawyer becomes a politician, what is their thinking? Most of, the, most of the lawyers who become successful politicians are people who had a lot of friends with a lot of money and a lot of interests. And so these lawyers, or what have you, were seen as intelligent enough to... So they can make an argument. They can make a case. They can but, make a case. And, and, and I think that that, and you know, generally speaking, they're well-spoken. Uh, they can make an argument out of just about anything, whether they believe it or not. So they're used to being very malleable. I mean, you go to court, you're defending criminals, and you're saying they're innocent in some cases. And so, you know, in some ways, a, a lawyer makes a good fit for what you need. Although it looks like that has been overshadowed in recent years by the everyman, the hollow man, the guy who can sort of say, I'm just like you. And these egghead elitists are the problem. So that's the Trump theory. That's yeah, the that's Trump right. phenomenon. That's the, the Brexit, the, the whole populist kind of thing. That's right. And I don't think that those people should be expected to be any more philosophical than any of the elitists that they're trying to replace. But the thing about populism and the thing that it, that's not negative about it is that it has broken up, I would say, a closed shop, a closed game. I mean, before 
the illusion of choice was you'd have a left-wing party and a right-wing party, a conservative party and a liberal party, but they were really the same party. Right. So, but go back to Trump, though. Yeah. So what's the difference there, then? Well, because with a Trump or even with a Doug Ford, what's key in both cases is that an outsider to the political party that they now have leadership of. Right. So he's the guy that's going to rock the boat. He's going to change the nature of the party. Right. So he's going to change the nature of politics as well. Right. And that actually does at least break up the monotony of the passing the baton back and forth between two things that are more or less the same. So what's the objection, though, to Trump in particular, then? Personally, I think that Trump is more than what we're saying. I don't think he's just an outsider. I well, think, it's no doubt that he is an outsider. No, no, he is an outsider, but that's not, the, to me, the distinctive thing. This guy's got an agenda. He has a pretty good idea of what he wants to do and what needs to be changed. Every, everything that he promised, pretty much in the election, pre, pretty much everything that he said, has gotten through. To many right. people's surprise, yes. Cleared so it can't up. be an objection to his agenda, then. It's got to be an objection to him not being fully developed in a philosophical sense, which That's, makes no sense. Well, we don't even know if he is or isn't. Well, That's, we don't, but according to the criticism, though, it's the criticism of his philosophy. Well, let's look at that for a second. So the, the most obvious two issues that I see coming up, especially with objectivists who argue about Trump, um, immigration and tariffs. There is within objectivism those who believe that philosophy effectively is, is blind to government jurisdiction. In other words, there are some objectivists who look at the globe as just a globe with no borders. Right. They think when you're talking about how a government ought to govern, you ought to govern as though there are no other countries. In other words, a citizen of the U.S. should be treated no differently than a, a citizen of any other country. Everyone should be treated as though they're citizens of the USA. So th there's that. There's that problem. Then there's the other one that they say is Trump wants tariffs and tariffs are bad because, you know, they are. Uh, kind of. I say kind of because within objectivism, there are globalists and there are nationalists. I think that the Leonard Peikoff sort would say you ought to have some idea of what's going on in the other country before you decide whether you want to uh, accept goods from that country. So I've heard him in the past, I believe I'm correct in saying this, say we shouldn't be buying uh, imports from China if the things that we're importing were built basically with slave labor. Right. But the, again, that's going back to applying that standard. Yeah. Whereas, but, but another, another objectivist, and this, you know, here we would talk about, say, um, Yaron Brook, he would say, look, uh, it'll all work itself out. Capitalism always rises to the top. If we just allowed free trade with China, then all the evils of communism will, will be weeded out by the strength of, of capitalism. But I so it'll wither away? Is it'll that, wither is away. It? Capitalism will conquer communism. But that's not what I've observed. Yeah. Not true. It's not true. And, and what's myopic about that is that we're looking at politics only. Right. You can't just say politics will fix politics. You have to say, wait a minute, underneath politics is ethics and epistemology, right? Right. Of and course, all those go together. But right. and, and, the more, and the deeper you go, the more fundamental and the more of an effect it's going to have on politics. So you can't just say... You know, free trade will fix tariffs. Clearly, it doesn't. I mean, that's why you have the United States imposing tariffs, mm -hmm. even in the even even in the um, in the face of evidence that free trade can work and improve the wealth of an economy. You've got people imposing tariffs. Why is that? Because of their underlying philosophy. You know, I, I really agree. The main thing about objectivist is you cannot be armchair about anything. You can be very theoretical and get it all right, but you still have to act. 
I've had a long, lifelong interest in justice. So ever since I was young, I've seen all kinds of injustice, and I've had an interest in justice, in integrity, and um, truth, honesty, all of it. And I've watched politicians all my life, and I know they're liars from, I'd say DNA, but I don't believe that. They're, they're, they've, <laughs> they're such a habit. I was lucky, and I'm honored to have been with Gary McHale and Canis, which is Canadians for Charter Equality, and he's um, taken on the establishment full-time. The Six Nations Reserve and the police were chaotic in their management through the um, Aboriginal policy networks that, that they had and that they used to block Canadians from standing up and saying, no, what you're doing is unjust, you're treating Canadians unfair and treating the Native groups above Canadians. So he went to fix that. And he was jailed, and I saw the, how unjust it was and how bad it was. And I went and got myself jailed too. Twice I was in jail, in the paddy wagon. Then the second time he asked me, Ted, do you want to join my lawsuit? I said, sure. Then I thought, oh, what have I got myself into? But I'm glad that I did because it was, a, it was a really honorable move. It was a really proper right move that I did in, in going in the lawsuit. And he won the lawsuit just last November, and it has been going on since 2007. I was in jail for 2012, so I'm only part-time, but I was still part of it. I was in the fray. And you're right when you say that the liberals and PCs are no different because they abide by the same machinations of the government. The bureaucracy is still the same that feeds them, that keeps them going. It's, it's all the one same big party. What Gary McHale has done is he's given Canadians a chance. Because of the lawsuit, they can break up the bureaucracy and free themselves if they want. Because of the lawsuit, now Canadians, any Canadian can peaceably stand up against the violent mobs. They can stand up against lying bureaucrats, even the police and have their say. And I, as a member of the Freedom Party of Ontario, I was proud to be jailed. And they're the only party that has stood with Gary McHale in in this lawsuit. I think you're bringing up another point there about, you know, effectively activists can get things done too from outside of those political parties, right? Yeah, they, the, the American government and the Canadian government have been so used to living outside of constitutional bounds that their policy, they think, are written in stone and they abide by it. So when somebody comes along and says, no, I want to go directly to the people, I want to do things my way and I want to stand up for my sovereignty, my individual rights, then I'm going to do it. And that's exactly what Gary McHale did, that's what Trump has done, and, and it befuddles people. And that's it for round one of Just Right's first Freedom Panel discussion. Round two continues when we next return, so be sure to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be but yeah, he was telling me, he was telling me global warming, that's, that's a big thing, climate change, like apparently it's going to be devastating because temperatures are going to rise by 1.2 degrees over the next 100 years, which is going to be devastating for Scotland. Some of us may have to undo the top button on a duffel coat. <laughs> yeah.
they said we're going to get more extreme weather as well. Like extreme weather in Britain. What are we going to get? Extreme drizzle. <laughs> I'm getting so gently moist, but it's slightly faster than it did a hundred years ago. <laughs> going to have to take the washing in eventually. <laughs> They also said sea levels are going to rise by six feet over the next hundred years, which is going to be devastating for people who can't walk uphill. <laughs> like really slowly. Who's so lazy they can't walk six feet up a beach in a hundred years? 